Good morning, Fairhill Church. All right. Uh, now, kids can be dismissed at this time. Uh, and uh, just a reminder, we're, this is open for, for all kids this week because uh, this sermon is uh, a difficult one, one that is uh, the darkest point in probably maybe all of Scripture. And so if uh, you would like your kids to, to not be part of that, uh, they, can, they can go upstairs. But otherwise... Uh, we will look at this, uh, this very last passage, uh, a long, long section of Judges versus, uh, sorry, chapters 19 through 21, that, that whole section. All right. So this is our last uh, segment in the book of Judges. This won't be the last sermon in the book of Judges. We want to um, offer, end on somewhat of a high point because scripture ends on, on more of a high point than, than Judges does, but... Today, today we are at the very, very bottom. We've talked about that um, circling around the toilet bowl, and we have, we have fully, fully flushed at this point. All right, utter darkness, uh, depravity, idolatry, evil, and we have this kind of very disheartening end to the book. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, and I can't talk about everything, but uh, just some things you'll want to notice as we go through this text, and so that you aren't troubled by it, uh, first of all, it's, it's very nameless. That it's almost as if in the darkness and sin, everyone has completely lost their identity. No one is named, and it's like they're kind of just floating around, kind of shadows, dehumanized by the sin around them and the sin in their own hearts. And you'll notice that as we, as we look at this. You'll also notice that... Uh, that there's no voice for those who ought to have a voice in this passage. Namely, all of the, the victims, they, they are not even given a, a, a platform to cry out. They're, they're not going to voice because no one cares what they think or what they, what they have to say. That those who have power, they will be the ones acting and they'll be acting upon those who are weak and, and powerless. Now, that's not to say that that's how it should be. That's, how, that's part of the brokenness and depravity here. And finally, we're not going to see what we might want to see, which is this kind of clear-cut condemnation of all of these things. No, the, the whole point is that there's no one to condemn because they have abandoned their king. There's no one to listen. And so... Uh, Almost everything in this passage is wrong. And so please don't think that like, well, the Bible is condoning any of this. No. This is the darkest point. This is what happens when the king is, is replaced with sinful human hearts that rule over lives. And so uh, what does become of a nation when they have abandoned God as king and they do what is right in their own eyes? Now, when we think of Israel doing that, the parallel we ought to draw then is what happens when the church when the church abandons their king? What happens when we don't follow our king in his kingdom, but instead we do what is right in our own eyes? What does that look like to descend into that darkness? It'll multiply and it'll spread. And judgment will be mandated that the darkness will not will not be contained. It'll actually start to overwhelm kind of the whole system. 
Now, thankfully, we do have a king, and we do have a light who comes into this darkness. And this passage teaches us how desperately we really need him. So let's pray uh, for help in a, in a difficult passage. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are very much humbled this morning as we stand before you, knowing how desperately we need a king, and yet knowing how in our sinful hearts, how, how foolishly we run from that king and his kingdom. Father, we, we know that when we are ruled by our own hearts, that evil comes. But Father, would this story illustrate it? Would we know the, the potential of, of where we stand without Christ? And would we then want to elevate him as our ultimate and true king? Father, would you, uh, would you use these things, unlikely as they are, by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are starting with uh, this very dark event that is going to characterize the rest of the passage. And we start with this kind of ominous beginning, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel... A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. So in Ephraim, Ephraim, and then she goes down to Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And this story kind of surrounds this Levite. Remember, the Levite, he is the religious leader. He is the priest. He ought to be the, the holiest of characters in our story. And yet, the first thing we see is that he has a concubine. He has a second wife solely there for the purpose of pleasure. All right, we're starting off on a bad note already. And then uh, we see this concubine. It says that she was unfaithful. Uh, you'll see footnotes, or maybe your text looks different. It's not clear what, what is really being said here. Probably the best thing is that she was, she was angry at him. Not that she was unfaithful against him, but she, she was angry. And so she abandons him and goes to her father's house in Bethlehem. Now, when the Levite comes to retrieve her, remarkably, he is, the father is amazingly hospitable. And for, for four days, his father's like constantly whining and dining him and, and trying to get him to stay until the fifth day, after fighting and fighting to get away, the Levite leaves with his concubine and his servants. But it's late in the day. It is far later. He does not get an early start to his trip. Verse 10. And the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He'd had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night there. His master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. 
Now, we will pass to Gibeah. So it's late, and they're deciding where they're going to spend the night, and it's between Jebus, which at this time, it's going to become Jerusalem, but right now it's a foreign territory. And what does he say? No, we're not going to risk our lives going to a foreign nation and put ourselves in their hands. What could we possibly expect from them? No, we're going to go to our own people, to Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. They will take care of us. That is where we're going. They pass up foreigner to go to the Israelites. And so they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat in the open square of the city, for no one took them into the house to spend the night. All right. We may not think this is a big deal. It doesn't look like a big deal. Uh, That's because we are inhospitable people (laughs) by nature. But no, this is... uh, This is a cruelty that is shocking already that their own people would not care for them. That they turned aside and said, no, we're not going to go to foreigners because why on earth would they help us? And here they are stranded in this city, completely abandoned. Out in the elements, there is no hospitality. Now it's a reminder that Israelite has always been sojourners and people who are away from the land. And they're called to have this special place for those who are outside and those who are needy and weak and vulnerable. And that has started to break down. Now verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his home, or from the work in his field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and was sojourning in Gibeah. He was a foreigner too. He's not one of the Benjaminites. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? He said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, which from which I have come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We had, we had straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and my female servants. And the young man with your, your servants, there is no lack of anything. The old man said, peace be to you. I'll care for all of your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his home and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. All right, this is a great indictment against Benjamin. That the only person who is willing to do anything is not from this tribe, is not from this place. He is unlike the people around them. And we get this very ominous, do not spend the night in the square. Now, what is the first thing to go when there is no godly king? If the powerful do not defend the weak, then the powerful will rule over the weak and the needy. And they will disregard them. And as we see, they will leave them and use them. And, and crush them for their own purposes. That is part of the great evil here, the darkness, is that no one cares. And we ought to be broken by that because we are people far from our home country. 
We are people far from our, our true kingdom. Do we reflect this same heartlessness towards those in need and those who are weak? But then, these are the ones that really get us, so things start to get worse. Verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so that we may have sex with him. Does this sound familiar? This is Genesis 19. What is Genesis 19? This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the quintessential evil cities that were destroyed by God raining fire upon them because they had become so decrepit and evil. And here is a very city of the Israelites playing out this very same story. And what do we see? We've seen the breakdown of people who care and love for the weak and the poor and the needy. And at the same time, we see just wanton sexual immorality. There's a breakdown of the most fundamental order. The Bible uses uh, homosexuality as like, it's the last straw that they have abandoned any semblance of the natural order that God has given them and they have just totally lost all moral compass in front of them. Now, how do they they respond to this? The owner of the house went out inside and and said, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, do not do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring out them to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Now, there's no commentary given on if this was a great response. This is not a great response. All right, and, and look at the, like the, you see just like the gradual lowering of the bar and the standards throughout all of Judges. And now, what is it? Like, please just let it be a good host tonight. That's the only reason you should not do these things. Instead of like, this is horrible, and why would you commit a dozen sins against this man? And why would God, God would not call you to this? And are you not the people of God? Is this not our brother? Like, no, it starts to slip and slip, and the reason's here, and they're like, they're holding to this like bare straws of truth, threads of truth. And to avoid one great sin, he ends up pleading with them to take on a whole other set of horrible, heinous sins. And so he offers up his virgin daughter, an unfortunate theme we've seen throughout the book, and this concubine, the Levite's concubine, his wife. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. Now it seems that the the Levite, the Levite takes his concubine and casts her out 
as a replacement for himself. And all of the evil of Gibeah, all the evil of this man is poured out upon this woman in the darkness of night. Until she literally is, is, is crawling back to the place and collapses in the front door. We'll notice in this story, uh, this woman never speaks. She never says a word. And she is used by her husband as a concubine. She is used by her husband again as a replacement for his own destruction. And then he's used by these worthless men of Gibeah and left for dead. That is what happens when the heart of darkness rules. When power is used for power's sake, when there's no king, when there's no mitigation of evil, that is what is left to happen. And we see both, we see two, two aspects here that I think is helpful. All right, we see the, the weak and the vulnerable used and abused and not protected. And that tends in our culture to come with a certain camp of people who, who really are adamant about that. And then we see another that we see moral and sexual immorality. There tends to be a different camp of people who are passionate about that. And no, it's, it's both of these things. Both of these things are evidence of a breaking down of the kingdom. That people have lost their, their king because the king is holy and calls to both. Both are evidence of great denials of the kingship of God and of Jesus. Now, what is the response? From the heart of her husband, verse 27, when her master got up in the morning, he opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. And there lay the concubine, his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. All right, the, the heartlessness. Like he, he, he wakes up refreshed and heads out the door ready to be on his merry way and trips over the woman that he just cast into the darkness. And how does he respond? He doesn't, he, he's not concerned. He doesn't even help her up. He doesn't offer a hand. No, get up, let's go. This is from the, the moral religious leaders of the day. And we think, oh, well, maybe there's one person innocent here. There's, it's definitely not the Levite. that she has become just an object that is used. In verse 29, when he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, uh, was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day that the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. 
Now, this is done one other time in Scripture where they cut something up and send it around, only it was with a bowl. It was this call to, to gather the troops that if you didn't come and, and support Israel, then you'd be cut up like this bull. But no, he does it with his own wife. Like she's an animal. And sends her out. She is not a person anymore. That sin and darkness, it just, it blots out humanity. That if we are made in the image of God, if we are to reflect his glory, if we are to do his will, that when, when sinness of the heart or sinfulness of the heart rules, like we become animals. We are utterly lost. And that is what happens when no king rules. When the king does not lead in righteousness, when our eyes and our hearts lead us, we will lead ourselves down into the depths of darkness. That is why we are given a great king. That is why we're given King Jesus. So it's not up to us to determine what is right and what is wrong. It's not up to us to consider what we ought to do and what love ought to look like. It's not given to us to, to trust in yourself and follow your heart. And well, What do you feel? No, we have this great king. And who is characterized by sacrifice and love and service. And Jesus, what does he do? He goes around and he like he humanizes people who are nameless and dehumanized. Think of the the woman at the well. That he would even regard her. And yet he comes and, and knows her completely. We think of the the compassion that he has on the woman caught in adultery. We think of him looking at the, the sheep who are harassed and helpless and he has compassion on them for they do not have a shepherd. All right, that is our great king. We see his holiness as he condemns all of these evils, not just outside but in the heart. That, that anger is murder and lust is adultery and right, such holiness and, and beauty set in this great king. Are you following your own sinful hearts to the depths? Are you following the the risen King Jesus? He is the light in the darkness. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you need a light in the darkness? Now let's continue. So the the call has been set forth to all of the tribes of Israel through the the limbs of this woman. And Israel comes together and they say, okay, we will execute justice. When no one will follow the king, when they will not have God as king, they choose to receive God as judge. And so... They gather 400,000 soldiers. They decide they will go up and destroy Gibeah. They will destroy this city for what they have done. And when they get there, they find the tribe of Benjamin, verse 12. 
the tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that has been committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their town in addition to the 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Now what happens? Instead of giving up the city, this whole tribe rallies around the town and what will we do? We will go to war. Civil war in the people of God. One tribe versus the other 11. And as it starts to play out, we start to see a familiar pattern. That the people come before God and they, they call for who will go up against the evil in this land and it's Judah first. Do you remember Judges 1? When they first were going into Canaan? They said, who will go up and fight the Canaanites that idolatry might be purged from us? God said, Judah first. It's exactly the same story, but now it's, it's much more tragic. And through three rounds of battle, Israelites, they, they lose once. And they lose twice. But then the third time, they defeat the Benjamites. In verse 46, on that day, 25,000 Benjamite soldiers fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they come across, they set on fire. Now they have destroyed everyone except for 600 men of Benjamin. And what do they go back and do? They go back and devote to destruction everything of Benjamin. Now who did they who were they supposed to do that against? The Canaanites. They're supposed to destroy everything. Man, woman and child, animal, every idol, every house, every structure, every object. Because it would be such pollution to them that the idolatry would destroy them and so they had to eradicate it. Now that evil is in Benjamin. They are destroying their own tribe because it is, it is the gangrene in this, in this Israel. It is the limb that must be cut off. It's the, the limb that must be amputated. That the only way to save Israel is to... I think of that movie. It's an awful picture, but... The man who is hiking, Aaron Rostrom, he's crushed under this boulder, and he's laying there day after day just waiting for death to come until what does he do? He gets a, a multi-tool which is given to him for free with you know, like bought a hat 
and he has to saw off his own arm to save his life. All right, that is what God is doing in Israel right now, that he's sawing off this limb, Benjamin, because it has become so idolatrous that it is going to bring down all of Israel with it. That the judgment of Canaan has now come against Israel itself. That's how evil they have become. And now just one disheartening detail. I told you this is a nameless story. There's one name, one name in the whole story. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. All right, you're all shocked now, aren't you? Yes. Uh, why is that so shocking? This is two generations from the Exodus story. It took two generations to get here. This is literally Aaron's grandson who is ruling over all of this, who is presiding over it. This is how quickly they can descend into idolatry. Now, we've, we've talked about this theme of destroy sin or it will destroy you. Pastor Steve has used that a few times and ultimately, we need a king who destroys evil and who destroys sin. Now, in this story, God was the one who did it. He sent Israel to go and destroy Benjamin. That was the, the good part of the story. When they set Benjamin to the, to the sword, when they utterly destroyed everything, that was what they were supposed to do. That God had sent them to eradicate sin. And the reality is, if you don't receive God as king, what do you get? You get God as judge. You get God, God as judge as a destroyer of evil who cuts off from the people of God, the things that are destructive. He does that out of love. He does that to save. Now, that's not how it ought to be. And for us, we, we can either, we can receive God as king. And he does that same work of destroying sin, but he doesn't do it with a, with a multi-tool to like hack entire limbs off. No. We get Jesus, the great physician, who with like surgical precision cuts the sin from our hearts and preserves us and maintains the life of the people and disciplines them and keeps them. That if you have a great king, he protects his people from evil. And the question is, are you receiving Jesus as this great physician or do you want him as judge? Are you willing to submit to his discipline and his loving and kind destruction of evil or will you be cut off completely? Will churches be cut off completely? Will families be cut off completely? We are given the choice, let us submit to our king who saves us from sin in, with such grace and mercy. 
kindness and gentleness. Now that takes us to the last section here. And instead of, instead of receiving God in that justice and in that judgment, what do they do? The whole nation of Israel rallies together and they decide, no. No, we will save ourselves. We want to keep the arm. And they go about all of these weird tricks to try to get around it and, and protect evil. Verse 21. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. So when they all gathered together, what did they do? They start taking, they make a bunch of dumb oaths. We've already seen this before. Jephthah and, and, and stupid oaths that don't need to be taken, but they do. And they said, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. A Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? All right. Can you imagine God at this moment? You really don't know why? Because you didn't destroy idolatry. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. Instead, you let it infect you, and, and now it's my fault for cutting them off? I'm trying to save you. But no, now, now you're mad? And we see God, God totally leaves the story at this point. They don't want him and his judgments anymore. They've got it from here. And so they decide that they do not want to lose Benjamin. They do not actually want him devoted to destruction. And they have 600 men left. And now they're thinking, well, no, we want to save. We want to save these evil ones. But how do we give them wives? Because we vowed not to give them any. And so this, this, this vow is constraining them. And so what do they do? They double down on vows. They double down on evil and manipulation. And verse 5. Then the Israelites said, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they'd also taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Oh good, there's some other people we were supposed to kill. Then they asked, which of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? And they discovered that no one from Jabbath, or sorry, Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. But when they were counted, no one from there was, was counted. All right, what did they end up doing? They end up looking for legalistic loopholes for how they can possibly manipulate the situation that the, so that they can get what they want. So that they can keep their, keep their limb that is destroying them. And so what are they they're saying? Well, that tribe, that tribe didn't say that they wouldn't give their wives. And that tribe is supposed to be devoted to destruction. And so what are we going to do? Verse 10, the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man. 
And they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. All right. They commit to destruction a completely innocent city. But they don't even do it like in the right way. They're supposed to, if they're going to devote them to destruction, everyone should die. But no. No, we're also not going to really do that because we're going to kill everyone. There, uh, these young girls' families will we'll destroy them, but then we'll capture them and bring them back and give them to these worthless evil men. And that they, this has been a, a great plan for them. But the problem, they need 200 more. How are they going to go get the last 200 wives? And so here we go again, verse 18. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we have taken this oath. But look, there's an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes to Bethel of Shechem and south of uh, Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjaminites, saying, Go hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say, Do us the favor of helping them, because we did not, uh, we did not get wives from them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So this is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. It doesn't count as giving your daughter to the Benjamites if they are forcibly kidnapped without your permission. That's the plan. And so during one of the festivals of Israel, one of the Lord's festivals, they send the Benjamites in there to, to capture these young women for their wives. Right. What is happening here? Remember what happened with the concubine? That there was this, this, this honor code and they had to uphold it. And how were they going to protect themselves? How were they going to save themselves? How were the, the great powerful leaders going to get what they wanted? They would use the virgin daughter and the concubine. And now all of Israel has band together and said, we want to protect and save these evil men. And how will we do it? We will cast our daughters before them. Cast them before evil men. We will destroy their households. We will kill their family. We will drag them off and kidnap them and give them into the hands of these men. And then we will have our tribe back. We had this one little story, horrific as it was, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until it becomes the actual pattern for all of Israel that this is how they do business. By destroying the weak, by using the vulnerable, and by just utter depravity.
Now, who is this a story for? All right, this is not a story for America. This is not a story for Russia or the Ukraine. This is a story for the church. This is a story for the church. We are the Israelites. And what he's saying is, what the story is saying is, right, when judgment needs to come, when destruction needs to come, when something needs to be cut off, are you going to protect the powerful? Are you going to create more victims? Are you going to destroy the ones who ought to be protected so that you can protect yourself? Or are you willing to, to follow the Lord and to do what needs to be done for justice to be executed? They refuse to follow the heart of God. And they finagle and use legalism and to get out from what is really the calling. They are left without a king. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now I remind us, we have a king. We have a great king who is leading us out of darkness. And we have a king who has shared with us his great heart. We have a king who has, has shown us the path to walk. And when you think of Jesus compared to all of these stories, who is our great king? Our, our king is the priest too, seeing that his people were going to be destroyed. Instead of throwing us to the dogs, what did he do? He went out and was destroyed himself. That he, he put himself before the, the powers that be and let them abuse and humiliate him and leave him for dead. And when justice needed to be executed against his people, because we are the idolaters, what did he say? He said, no, I, I will take the punishment. I will be destroyed on their behalf. And he was set to utter destruction. He was destroyed on our behalf that we might be delivered. And when he made vows, he didn't make vows to protect himself and keep himself from suffering. No, he, he didn't preserve an ounce of life for himself. No, he made promises that I will give you eternal life and it shall never be taken from you. I'll forgive you. You'll be sons and daughters. I'll gift you the Spirit. And he did all of those things by death on the cross. That is our great king. That is the king who, who calls us to follow him. This great king who loves us. In those days, Israel had no king, so they did what was right in their own eyes. We have a king. Let us do what is right in his eyes. Let us glorify our king. Let us follow our king into life and joy and light that even Jesus didn't see in his life until his resurrection.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, how desperately we need Jesus. We thank you that you have established your kingdom through him. We praise you that your kingdom comes through the blood of Christ, through his sacrifice, through his death, to pour out mercy and grace. Father, we would have nothing to rely on. We would be utterly destroyed, committed to destruction, just as these were without Jesus Christ, our King. Father, we thank you for him. And we confess that we still follow our hearts. We still run into the darkness. We still run through the same patterns, the same legalism, the same vows, the same foolishness. Father, would you help us to follow our King? To follow him in mercy and grace and to, to sacrifice and and even death, knowing that there is life on the other side. We thank you for the abundance of grace that you have poured out upon us. Would you help us to walk in that grace and all of the light that, and life that is given to us in Jesus Christ, we pray. In his name.